Welcome to the Grit and Grace space. Come along as we explore experiences, cultivate community, and grow our appetite for adventure. Here we go. On this week's podcast, I sit down with the one and only Mr. Rao Alexander, and I talk about our ups and downs over our 10-year relationship, how school is going. We dig a little bit into work talk and then round it out with some financial advice and take all of this with a grain of salt is something that Alexander and I are really passionate about. It's helped our marriage in terms of finances tremendously and we're big advocates for the tool and how it could help you and your relationship as well if you are with somebody that you share expenses with, essentially. A full range of topics here for you today. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. <laughs> this is a very special episode we have for you today. Sitting down with Mr. Rao, my husband, for a five-year anniversary slash MBA update slash life chit-chat, and would you like to introduce yourself? You're going to introduce me. I've already been on the pod. You haven't been on the pod. So you never published that one? I never published that one. Ah. Uh, I don't think you better lose mine. All right. So taking it way back to the summer of 2013, Alexander and I met when I was taking a class that Alexander was a TA for. It was in a machine shop at Auburn. We both went through mechanical engineering together. And I'm going to talk about how I saw things and then I want you to talk about how you saw things so I was taking this class over the summer and I thought oh my goodness this TA is so helpful he's sitting right across from me right across from my lathe in my mill every class and always asking if I had questions or if there's anything he could help me out with I'm like oh my gosh what a nice person and at the time I had like sworn off boys I was ready to like not date ever again and the next person I wanted to date was the person I was going to marry so I was very like not interested I guess in dating so it didn't even cross my mind that Alexander might have a teeny tiny crush on me and then at the end of the class my project was graded and by a different TA. And Alexander said, hey, the professor is looking for maybe some female TAs for mechanical engineering. Would you be interested? And I thought, sure, I needed a job and it was some free money, basically. You don't really have to do much. And then we started working together in the lab the following fall. So that would have been my junior year and Alexander's senior year at Auburn. And then we would 
hang out in the lab and maybe hang out outside of class and finally just got to the point where Alexander's like what are we doing like obviously there was like some chemistry between us and I was like well I don't know if I'm interested in dating and so that quickly turned into like yes let's date and about six weeks later we basically moved in together and have been like inseparable ever since so that's my take on the relationship kickoff what is how did how did you see it through your eyes i mean i agree with most of that although where i sat in the lab was just centrally located so i could argue maybe you were coming to work near where i was sitting but uh either way i think everything else is pretty accurate i mean yeah i will also say that you came into lab every day with like stamps on your hands from being out at the bars the night before and you would wear like a frat t-shirt not a frat t-shirt but like a something from like a sorority formal i was like this guy must be such a partier like look at him go i had lots of other t-shirts and i was out a lot but not late i would just go until like nine. Oh, just until nine yeah so fast forward we ended up obviously dating and staying together and Alexander graduates a year before me and moves to Columbus, Georgia, which I had never even heard of Columbus, Georgia before you got a job there. Had you? Yeah, a little bit, but not, not a lot. Yeah. So about 45 minutes outside of Auburn and you would come back to Auburn like on the weekends and maybe one day during the week. And so that's sort of what our relationship looked like my senior year. And then when I graduated, there's really only one job opportunity available and it was in Las Vegas. And so you were like, well, go out there if you like it then maybe we'll talk about moving out there and then if you hate it you can come back and long story short I hated it it was really tough to find community out there and I think if Chinzia today had to go back out there and do it it probably would be a different experience but who I was at the time it it was hard to I guess maybe be more outgoing and like work. It was a lot of work to build community. So I had like one friend out there the whole time and a lot of lessons learned. And I think if I had to do it all over again, I would because of like how I grew and what I learned as a result of it. But it also meant six months of long distance. And at one point in time, Alexander broke up with me. I took a break. He broke up with me. It was like the longest week of my entire life. So how about you talk a little bit about what was going through your mind? I don't recall. <laughs> I don't know what was going through my mind. I was just, I don't know, frustrated by it. I think I was much more impatient when I was younger. Although I still had like a... Much more impatient? Yeah. More impatient. And I think it would just get kind of like frustrated with all the distant stuff and it wasn't working out and it's just easier to move on than to fix it sometimes but we got over it 
Yes, we got over it. And yeah, I guess also it probably was pretty miserable dating somebody who was miserable, hated their job, and was like, you are the only person I knew really well at the time. And so I would be like <laughs> leaning on you for help and support emotionally. And you probably, that was probably just like overwhelming because you were building friendships in Columbus and like grow where you were planted. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to, like, have to, I feel like I had to take care of you from a distance, which was tough. When I was doing well, I felt like you were just, like, weighing me down. So, ended up getting a job moving back to Columbus, and then we moved in together, and I describe our first apartment as living in the ghetto, but if you ask Alexander, we lived by the country club, and... Both can both be of, true. Both, yes, both can be true. However, my truth was more true than your truth. It was fine. It was affordable. Saved a bunch of money. In the ghetto. And so then we moved to North Columbus, and I started going to church with some friends from your work who, like, that person ended up being our best man in our wedding, and I would consider... Blake and Jen, like, our best friends in Columbus, probably. We have a lot of good friends. We do have a lot of good friends. We're very lucky. And then five years after dating, we finally got engaged. But talk a little bit about, like, your mindset through, like, the whole process of maybe, like, poor choice of words, like, what took so long, but also, like, how... What was going through your mind over those years, you know? I think I thought that if we worked on our relationship enough, we could, like, make it perfect. And then once it was perfect, that we could get engaged. But I had to realize there are always going to be things that need work and, like, imperfection. And that was took me a long time to realize, I think. But at the same time, I didn't really see, like, the point. Not, like, the point of getting married, but I didn't see what the rush was. So I was just... We were working and doing life and trying to save money and that just didn't necessarily seem like consistent with a lot of that. I mean, we didn't own a couch for a long time and had the TV on the floor for months and it's like, does a wedding really make sense right now? So I think there was just a lot to think about trying to be like financially stable before we did all that. But I think like spiritually you've grown quite a bit since yeah. then. So like, what would you tell your self what would yourself today tell yourself back then yeah i think that was the other component that drove some action but i think even then i grew a lot even post-engagement really so i mean i think i just need to hear what friends were telling me i guess blake and jen and all that so i don't know i think i don't think i could deliver any news that would have been revolutionary just like i think the way things worked out worked out well so talk a little bit about how Blink and Jen, like you had some one-on-one -on -one conversations with them when I was like out of town one weekend or something. And that seemed to have been like a big turning point for you. It was a series of small things, really. I think it was spending time with them and people they were friends with and they would make recommendations of like content to consume. And I think over time, just kind of chipping away at the 
perception of what it, I thought it meant to like be a Christian was, I think, and had to like re tear it down and rebuild it in a way. And I think it just took some time. Let me go into more detail about some of that. Yes. Little portions. So what was your impression of the, I guess it was the meaning of marriage when Tim Keller gave a talk at Google or something? Yeah, something that Blake recommended. And I think that plus some other meaning of marriage. He talked about the book some and did a talk at Google. And I thought that was, those are really good. I mean, it wasn't super prepared. He had talking points, but he did some Q&A. It just, it was very natural and he made a lot of really good arguments, I thought. He's the first person to make good arguments like that really heard. Never really heard someone argue why you should get married, like, really break it down. So I think that was interesting. Can you give an example? I think one of the better analogies was, like, I think Keller likes the stones or, like, rocks in a tumbler analogy of, like, knocking off sharp, like, edges of rocks. I think that's, like, a good analogy, right? And how most people want to marry someone that's similar to them, but there's a lot of benefit in marrying someone that's different than you because you rub off on each other and polish each other. I thought that was a really good point, really good analogy most people can understand. So know? how how does marriage change that versus like living together and doing life together before that? Well, I think it's the commitment piece of marriage. You can't just leave. It like raises the barrier, right? Versus just this is annoying and I'm tired of this and I'm out. So I think that making the commitment creates a safe space to grow. And Keller talks a lot about that. Mm -hmm. So in the last, so we've been together for 10 years. We have been married for five years. What have been in your mind, the hardest three things in our relationship? We'll say like post being married because there's a lot of, you mean times or you mean things that Just, I still can't stand that you do. Oh, all of the above. I don't know. I think, I think that one good analogy, well, not even an analogy, but I think something you got to realize with marriage and is that like you're going through whatever your spouse is going through. So if like they have a tough time at work, like you now get to have a tough time with them with work. And so I think you tend to have a lot of work up and downs. And I get to go through that. So I might have a great thing going on at work and you have a tough time and have to experience that. So that's, I think, always challenging. I'll say that. And then I think also just personality-wise, we're pretty different. You would, like, you work from home now, so you need the house clean. I just don't care about that. And the way you study is different. The way you organize thoughts is different. Like, we just are very different in a lot of those ways. And so it can be tough to find compromises with the fact that I load the dishes two nights a week and you do it five nights a week. Like we just find ways to to work it out. But I think those things are always tough. There's always expectations and the way, there's the way you want to have things done and the way I want to do things. And you have to find a compromise um, versus just fighting about it every week. Like Other than the mini tiff just prior to starting the podcast when we were heartily debating on the mic setup i feel like we don't really fight though like i feel like we haven't really had big arguments well, in a long time yeah i realized it wasn't worth it that took a long time to realize 
took a lot of time to realize that when you want to talk about a situation, you don't want a solution. And that when you pull away, you really want to be pursued. And that, and there's the third one, maybe related to this issue. But we, it's not worth it to fight in a lot of cases. Doesn't really matter, I think. I think when we had, I think at a different time in our lives, it maybe did seem to matter. Like whether we went out to dinner or not might make a difference. But a lot of things just don't matter, particularly in the grand scheme of things. So, like, just let it go. I guess it's not important. So how do you find balance with letting it go versus building resentment for just, like, not fighting back? I think you just got to communicate about it when you feel like you're always the one compromising. I think there's a way to do it without keeping score and just say, look, like, I don't feel like, you know, we're, I think we're always compromising on my side of things, you know, like, or whatever. I think I'm always one giving up ground. Just have a discussion about it. Maybe bring some facts to the table, but yeah, it's tough. But there's things probably the other person thinks they're compromising on that you don't realize. Yeah. So, and they'll they'll remind you of that. <laughs> so in contrast, well, hold on. Let's touch on three things that apparently I do today that drive you crazy. I don't know, three things now? Like yeah. the fact that you won't stop working. Like you just keep working. What? Yeah. I'll be like, it'd be five. You're like, I might. You're, you'll see you're signing off. Then 20 minutes later, you'll still be on teams, like teams and people. Like, you won't stop working. That's really annoying. You are late everywhere. It's the worst. I don't enjoy And you demand that the house be super clean, which I don't get. But I never ask you to clean it. Yeah, you're right. That's not that bad. But I do feel like you... Sometimes you do. I don't know. There's things. So there's... I mean, just differences. There's different. I think it's more so my like inability to cope with a messy house probably bothers you more than my insistence on keeping it clean. That's that's a good way to think about it, yeah. I think it's accurate. Your brain like won't function at the house if there's like unfolded laundry in two rooms over. <laughs> which doesn't matter to me. Like I I can focus intently on one thing and it can be like a disaster around me. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I wonder where that comes from. I don't know. Growing up, did you ever have to like do chores or have some level of expectation of cleanliness, or was it pretty chill? I don't remember how clean my room had to be when I was younger, but you know, I moved into the back house when I was like, mm, I don't know, tenth grade, maybe. 15. Yeah, probably. Yeah, before I had a car or anything. And so I lived, like, by myself back there for, like, three years. I mean, I came in for dinner and stuff, but... So I got to live, like, however I wanted to. But I don't know. I just... I mean, I need a certain amount of cleanliness. Like, I don't want, like, things stacked on top of things. Eventually, it'll drive me crazy. But generally, I can focus on the spreadsheet quite well, even if there's 25 things on my desk. I think it's fine. And you have lots of on your desk, too. Like, why are the matches there? The matches are there for my little, like, what is it called? It's not Palo. My little stick, my little. Yeah, that's fine. Anyway, so you have stuff on your desk too. Stick thing. I have a lot more. I could work. I've got three desks. It's like a U shape. And yeah. It's just like it's completely covered in stuff. See, the stuff that's on my desk right now, though, it's all like neatly stacked piles. 
Yeah, that's fine. Anyway. Okay, so in contrast, where what's an area where you feel we have grown the most in the last five years of being married? Mm, I think we do a really good job of like making compromises, whether it's like budgeting compromises or like whatever it is. I think we do a really good job of eventually reaching an agreement that we've both given up something or landed in a place that's okay. Our groceries were under $100 this week. Uh, Great. So when we first started, when we first were in Columbus together, we went to the Piggly Wiggly, and I remember this vividly. You would not let me buy red peppers because they were more expensive than green peppers. That's like $1.96. And you were like, they taste the same. Like, these are cheaper. Yeah. Number one, they do not taste the same. I agree with that, actually. I was... That was silly back then. And then number two, that is sort of like a peek into how our brains maybe like value things differently when it comes to finances. I mean, yeah, back then we were definitely spending under a hundred bucks a week in groceries. And now we're spending 130, 140. Anyway. Probably because we're buying like popsicles and stuff. <laughs> you don't really need. I don't think popsicles are breaking the bank. I mean, we get the receipt from two weeks ago. We can figure out what's breaking the bank. No. no. <laughs> so that's so, a compromise, right? Yeah. But I think we do a good job. We don't always solve the problem the first time we sit down. But I think generally, if we could sit down and have a conversation about where we're both coming from and why we want what we want, then or within a few days, we can like reach an agreement. Yeah, I would say that's a, probably the biggest shift I've seen is where maybe more willing to listen to the other person. And I think independently, we both have like greater emotional intelligence than we've had. Like, I think that's just something that continues to grow and become more mature. And I think a result is being better listeners and maybe like less selfless or more selfless. Yeah. Being more selfless. So what is something that you would like to be, more intentional about going forward or somewhere that you would like to grow more going forward? Only me me personally? No, in our relationship. Oh. I think we still don't spend enough time during the week talking about things other than work. <laughs> it's a big part of the week, right? You spend more time working than you do, you know, other than that. So disclaimer, um, disclaimer for the audience, Alexander and I both work at the same company now and we overlap, our jobs overlap just enough the way that I see it mm-hmm. so that we can gossip, <laughs> but not, not more that we have to like really work together or, you know, like your output feeds into to my inputs or vice versa. But, yeah, working at the same company and being both, like, very driven in our careers and wanting to do the right thing the most optimal way drives a lot of conversation outside of work with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you can't do something, it's tough to do something for, you know, nine hours a day and then not want to share kind of your successes and losses with your spouse. But I think it would be good to mix in other things and we do a good job of that i think on like vacation we find other ways to connect and i think now with school we're able to talk about that some and it gives us something else to sort of talk about other than the same old work problem that like
is on we can't, we can't solve in a lot of cases so yeah. i think that i think just finding other things to talk about and maybe we just don't have that many other interests though like books you would read i would find boring and vice versa so it's not like we can do like a mini book club and like talk about it necessarily shows are fine but like so we don't have a ton of common interests like pretty different other than that i like highly technical things you don't care about it you know yeah and just a more art driven right so two more questions and then we can start talking about school okay (laughs) i know you're loving this the 25 minute mark so (laughs) so looking forward in the next three years what i what is sorry what is something that you are looking forward to in the next three years I mean other than being finished with school that's that's well, a gimme I mean my three year plan is to have a move up a couple positions in three years right mm-hmm. the average person spends three years in a role so I could be two roles higher which I think would be good I think I have a I think in the organization I'm in, I've been trying to build a, I think there's like three pillars of the organization sort of, and been working to build each each pillar. And I think I have a unique vision of how they come together that I'm not spectacular at any of the three, but I see how they mesh in ways other people don't. So that'd be my goal is to leverage that in three years along with MBA. It's going to be it's almost like, it's a huge component as well. I wouldn't say it's like a fourth pillar, but it's huge how the business functions. So that'd be my goal is to be in a role where I can really leverage all that. And I think it could, could be very good and exciting. It's what I really want to be doing. I think long-term aside from that. Yeah. It's done with school. What about like with our relationship? Hmm. Keep it PG for the audience. I don't know. I mean, it's not like there's, there aren't concrete, like goals like i think when we're done with school having more date nights would be good it's just there's a lot of things competing for our time and resources which say resources in general time time and money attention mental bandwidth so it's like what's important to us right is it spend more time with friends spend more time with each other travel we could be traveling more like what do what do we want to do? I don't know. Save aggressively so we can retire at 40. Like, yeah. we have a lot of options. So I just don't know. And I think every year it sort of changes a little bit. Like, the you know, we want to retire, but also want to travel. Now it's MBA. So, like, it's kind of juggling these things and always kind of re refocusing. But I don't know. It's, it's hard. There's no concrete stuff. Spend more time together. Yeah. Not talking about work. Not talking about work. That's the key. So getting into the topic of school for the audience, Alexander and I both started an executive MBA program at Emory. We applied to the program in November of last year and found out that we both got accepted in December. And the the reward for both getting accepted was getting our sweet little disco girl, our perfect little Aussie doodle who is sleeping right now while we report this podcast together on the couch. 
So we started classes officially in the end of August, towards the end of August, and we're taking three classes. The first class is managerial accounting or accounting for managers. Second class is leadership and organizations. And the third class is strategy. And the professors for each class are all extremely different. The accounting professor is like if you take Franck from Father of the Bride and make him a CPA, make him a CPA and a female and with a little bit of an Indian slash British accent, that would be our professor. And she is just completely fabulous in every sense of the word and so much fun. And she knows her stuff, too. And she said, darling, if you ever have any questions, you just call my cell phone. I will do voice to text in my Mercedes when I'm driving home. And we will talk through any questions that you have. There's no need to worry. And our leadership professor is, I don't know, he's got to be like mid-70s. He's chill. He's like a bro. He's so funny. He's so chill. But what, like uh, average age 70? I don't know. Yeah. Late 60s, oh, early yeah. 70s? Late mid-60s. Anyway, yeah, he's very chill, and I think his background is actually, like, psychology. Mm. And in that class, we're talking through a lot about what different, like, levels of maturity different leaders are like. And so you sort of are able to reflect on yourself as far as how, like, what level of a leader are you today versus uh, maybe the people that you're surrounded with might be higher or lower. And, you know, doing that deep work of what what do I need to work on in order to continuously improve my leadership skills? And a lot of that is how do I care less? That's my, my biggest takeaway so far is being more confident. And then our third professor is, he's kind of a tough cookie. Mm. He, he's very direct and has very high expectations of his students. And the first class was pretty abrasive as far as setting the tone. And Literally the first person he called on like didn't know the answer and he wouldn't let anybody help her. It was tough. Yeah. We just sat there in silence on the Zoom call. Yeah, one person did try to help her, and he was like, no, no. He shut him down. Yeah. He's like, do not talk unless you're called on. You must raise your hand in order to be called on. And so now, like, every class you can see at any point in time, there's between three to eight hands up at all times. Just so that the uh, component, the key piece of this is that participation class participation is 30 percent of our grade and so we want to make sure that we're getting our participation points but not interrupting anybody else who's talking and not looking like an idiot and not looking like yeah goodness gracious so question for you what is your first impression so far of school in general and then talk about your first impression of each of the classes Mm. it's good it's really good. I think it uh, is far more engaging online than I would have thought. Online format is like, they, I think the professors work to make it really engaging. And when they do, it is like really engaging. So that that's pretty incredible. I think it's way better than any Zoom call on one throughout the day. 
basically. It's better than some meetings I'm in person in, to be honest. For context, it's basically six hours of lecture a week. So three classes. Two hours, yeah. You hit one class, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and each class is two hours long with the professor. Yeah. So overall that, I think the students are awesome, very driven, very smart. And I think, yeah, the program is just very polished. Like, I think it's it's the the very high caliber of professor. You don't have any of this undergrad. There's a lot of this engineering professors that are there to do research, and they come in, and they go through their slides, and they leave, and you're, like, confused. There's none of that, right? This is is totally different than that. So it's nice. It's really nice. Okay, class by class, basically. It's good. I mean, Usha's amazing very engaging accounting comes pretty naturally to me i don't i think it's not that hard YNAB helps with some of that it's a little bit a little well, bit we like should that. talk about YNAB before we sign off uh, it's like the whole podcast on YNAB, but so that's mm-hmm. fine leadership is tougher to me you can learn what the right answers are but it's really hard to implement practically change yourself and you have some blind spots because you're assessing yourself. So, Do you have an example? I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't go in every morning. What I need to do is go in every morning and look at leader level five and ask myself, am I doing these things and how am I going to like execute them today? Every day. If you're not doing that, like you probably just won't be successful. So it's hard. It's a hard, it's a high bar to reach. And you have to do a lot of things that are maybe not natural like not deriving any value from what people think of you and having confidence to know that you're doing the right thing and whatever it's it can be really tough and strategy i think is to me the most interesting class it's very applicable i think to work that i do now in a way that especially now we're getting into like assets and competencies and that's very applicable to the shop you work at and the equipment you have and the parts you make and what you want to invest in versus outsourcing. It's like you can do a make-buy analysis in a spreadsheet and get an answer, but there's a whole strategy portion that is like hardly ever accounted for, I think. And we get in over our head on things that we shouldn't have been doing and we don't do things we should be. It's like it's a whole mess. So we let the numbers drive it without any other context. And I think that's, I think that's bad. So if you're in this role in like six months, you know, between Mm -hmm. now and the next six months after going through the whole strategy class, do you see, like, how would you take the elements out? The cutting of aluminum blocks before they get to us. And on paper, their internal investment's really good, right? But strategically... Is this a basically a commodity business? Should we be moving into it? Is there as much profit there as we think there is? Should is it worth the floor space to do that? And we could do something else, right? So, like once again, the spreadsheet says we should do this, but what is the the five force analysis say you should do? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we know the answer today, but something that I'm curious about is assigning value to each of those forces. You know? Yeah, I think you have to do something like that, but I. I have a big problem with some of the areas that we're investing in currently. I think we're not investing in core competencies. I think we're investing in commodity manufacturing 
commodity methods of manufacturing and we're going to lose our strategic advantage yeah like i think it's i think people don't think about it that way and it's a, it's a big mistake because that it's sorry this actually already happened the site brought in work and lost it to someone else who could just do it for cheaper and we should have never done the work i, I would actually argue now mm. aside from whether we lost the work or not mm-hmm. we're doing the work now that's similar we should not be doing the work we should mm-hmm. We should redeploy as assets to do things only we can do and build a bigger competitive advantage and a bigger barrier entry so that other so we have 100% of that volume and no one can come take it from us. That's what I think we should do. So how do you message that up to, I guess, finance or operations or the GM, like whoever, I guess, has the highest final say? How do you verbalize that? I think you have to... I think you could put together a nice deck that explains how you can you you, you can do it. It's a little different too because of the way the cost center is structured. It doesn't actually incentivize you to go get work and then dominate the market and then charge more for it. Because you're a cost center, you can't really do that. But I would still argue that you should be doing work that only you can do, and the business should understand that. They should not be asking you or sending you work that's not your core competency. That's just is dumb. Yeah. Ish. I mean, I could see doing a little bit of work that's not the core competency, like the Coke can bottling example. If you do 5% of work that's not the core competency, that's fine. But both business units have core competencies, and we're spending a lot of money and a lot of time doing things that are not in there because we want it. We just want to insource it. And, so it, I and, it's a, and I would argue it's a gigantic mistake it's like a fundamentally flawed approach. Like even, even before this, I've had discussions with people in different positions above me uh, and some of them understand strategy and they've voiced this before I took the class. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, that makes sense. So if you were, if you woke up tomorrow and you were the general manager, what would you do to sort of turn in a different direction? Am I at risk of being fired? No. So I'm, I'm unfireable. Unfireable. And I can stay at the site as long as I want. Yeah. I would invest in core comp- I would I would invest in core competencies and technology that no other site has. Like without getting too technical, right? Yeah. If if a vendor can do it for a similar cost or another site can do it for a similar cost. If they have those assets or could easily deploy those assets, I'm not going to do the work. Yeah, it's like pretty straightforward. I think actually, I think we we vertically integrate too much in some areas. I think there's also a big gap where I'll say this last thing, and then we'll get back on the school topic because this is getting into work talk a little bit too much. But I think there's a huge gap in like leaders' intent flow down, and there's a there's a better word for that, but where Everybody at the site doesn't know the, what the vision is, what the five-year vision is, or cannot articulate it, or um, whatever that looks like for their function is not aligned with what that top-level goal is. And I think there's, I think that's where I would invest emotional energy and yeah first before we go like execute on what that looks like tactically i would agree i mean the site has three goals but i would argue that 
But if you polled a random selection of 15 salary people, would they? No. Yeah. But I'd argue one and a half of the goals are broken. Oh, the goals themselves don't even make sense. Yeah. Are those Columbus goals or are those like higher than? Higher. Mm, it's like a mix. It depends how you define it. But yeah. Anyway, no more work talk. What is aspect of school and then so similar to the other question what is something about school in general and within each of the three classes that surprises you mm, talk about the engagement level is really high i don't know it's just slides are so bad they're so ugly why are slides so ugly yeah she made a big deal about when we do our final presentation to have like nice slides and i'm curious what <laughs> slides she's been trash. A, Yes, she's been a CFO, she's a CPA, she's a lawyer. Like she I bet it's has... she made her slides or something. It's fine, she's great, don't get me wrong. But the slides are not good. I know. They're, they're oh. very nasty. But So that's like a funny thing I noticed, I guess. But the business cases are super interesting. There's a lot to learn. You don't often get to... You have to basically be in consulting or change a lot of jobs to see how industries work and learn these lessons. Like I think that's part of why MBA is like valuable is you get to, you know, realize business cases and learn mistakes and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's only other way to do it is to go do it yourself. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are pretty, don't want to make a lot of mistakes and hindsight is like, takes years to see the results a lot of times. Right. So it's a really good method for learning, not, not specifically what to do, but how to analyze situations and what to look out for. Yeah. Not teaching you like, if this happens, do this. Right. So I think it's good. I think it's highly applicable and yeah. What's something that surprised you about the leading people in organizations class? Mm, that, that I mean, I'm just surprised that such a formal structure exists for analyzing people's leadership level. Yeah. It seems like hard to define, but it seems actually well-defined. And it makes me wonder if leaders are using that tool to assess other leaders or not, or if they're just winging it. Yeah. You know, like he seems likable. Because there's some people that get put in positions that are like, it's wild, right? Yes. And I don't think all leaders need to be the same, but I see some leaders that don't act, you know, their level that they should be. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about our Berkman assessments. Okay. Do you have yours? Mm, it's at work, but I have a PDF somewhere. Like I, I emailed it out to my team. So I can like find it in my sin items and pull it up and stuff. But do you have it on your phone? You don't go, have Outlook on your phone? Yeah, I could. I'm, I could go do it. Yeah, pull it up. Okay. So one of the things that we completed before orientation and then reviewed at orientation was a Berkman assessment. And it's a way to look at different components here. I'll read this. For 70 years, over 70 years, the Berkman Method has been helping people reach further with our unique yet scientific approach to behavioral and occupational assessments used by millions of people and the world's best companies to develop leaders, improve teamwork, explore careers, select talent, increase sales and productivity. And what the Berkman Method is, is you look at different like nine different categories and you are assessed based off of how you usually present in that category versus what you need, what your needs are. 
and how and what your stress response might be. And so I want to talk about two examples. The first one I want to talk about is something where you and I are very similar, if there's one like that, and one where we're very different. Okay. Just re- read your social, like, start in social energy, usual needs. I'm just like, read left Well, right. let's, let's try self-consciousness because that one was pretty interesting. So my usual is 14 and my needs is 44. So it's 44 and 21. Okay, so that's pretty opposite. Okay, so self... Mm, that opposite. 44 and 21, and I'm 14 and 44. Yeah, it's both bullet, like on one side of the spectrum, but it's fine. Talk, let's talk about it. So self-consciousness is described as your use of sens- blah, blah, sensitivity when communicating with others. <clears throat> Let me flip to it. And so my usual behavior being on the low end of the spectrum is that I would present as straightforward, unevasive, and matter of fact. The summary is your ability to be objective and free of self-conscious feelings is a strength that naturally, which your ability to be objective and free of self-conscious feelings is a strength naturally resulting from your preference for frank and direct relationships. You find it easy to come to the point without being beating around the bush. And when I read this, it really surprises me because I think I am very... It says free of self-conscious feelings, but I feel like I'm always assessing how a conversation went or if I said the right thing or like worried about offending somebody in some cases, but in other cases I am very direct and I don't know. It's, it's interesting. So your score was a 44. So a little bit further sort of towards. Blend. Yeah. Yeah. So mine says combines openness with sensitivity, deliberate yet respectful, direct yet, but earnest. So I'm like right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Although you regard yourself as being sensitive and respectful of others, you tend to combine these elements of sensitivity with a general unevasiveness in your dealings with other people. Hmm. And so, <clears throat> in contrast, my needs are a bit further towards the middle, so 44 in contrast to 14. And so your needs and your stress response both come from that 44 score from that needs-based score and so for me it says while you appreciate a certain amount of openness and frankness from others you also need to feel a personal respect from time to time especially from significant people in your life and my cause of stress is both too much sentiment and lack of personal concern are likely to cause you discomfort any criticism of you needs to be balanced with genuine praise and when I most sorry, possible stress reaction when the needs described above are not met would be undue sensitivity or over directness. And I think that I am much more aware of that now, even just with us when I'm getting impatient or something, I just become maybe extremely direct to the point of like exaggerating where I don't actually feel a certain way, but I'm trying to make a point. And I don't know. It's it's interesting. I scored a 21 in needs. Oh. 
However, you feel most at ease with those who are direct and straightforward with you. Frankness and openness from others allows you to respond with your naturally balanced approach. Causes of stress. You're likely to feel discomfort around people who are shy or overly sensitive, mistaking their self-consciousness for emotional weakness. So stress behavior, self-consciousness, embarrassment, reduced self-confidence. So I tend to feel unappreciated when people are not like direct. I think. So has this made you think of any anything like from an application standpoint that you didn't realize about yourself beforehand? This one? Not so much. There's another one though that I asked my team about because they have all different answers on. It was, I don't know. But there there have been a few. I sent this to the team and they, like we talked through some of these. And there were, it was, I'm using it more to figure out how to work with them right now. Right. So the other piece of this is there's about 65, 67 people in our cohort, in our executive MBA class. And we have been all divided into groups between five or seven people. And so we got these assessments back for ourselves, but also information from our teammates so we can see where we're similar and different and I think it it helps us understand when somebody says one thing you know they they may be and sorry if somebody's usual is very different from what their needs are it's important to realize what people's needs are to better understand maybe what's going through their mind and I think it sort of fast tracks you to trust and vulnerability in a way that without having this information about that person's personality um, might just take a little bit longer to figure them out mm-hmm. I want to do one more I want to do assertiveness assertiveness yeah what was your assertiveness score I scored a uh... 81 and 72. Oh, really? Okay, so I, my assertiveness score, my usual, I presented as a 10, but oh my, my needs were a 72. Interesting. So don't wait yours, because like, I've got one that's flipped like that, but I'm a different one. Okay. So we'll talk about my assertiveness, and then what... We'll let's, let's just both our usuals first. Okay. So for assertiveness, my usual behavior, which is kind of funny... Uh, pleasant, easygoing, and agreeable. And then my stress response is ignoring weak superiors, assertiveness, and provocative statements. And so my takeaway is that I'm probably like pretty stressed because <laughs> I feel like there's an imbalance of how often I truly am pleasant, e- easygoing, and agreeable. But I do try to be like that with the people that I work with face to face, but I'm. You often don't know who's in charge, probably, and that triggers the stress response, though, right? So it's more of like a needs thing when you don't get the needs. Right. You stress respond, right? Yeah. So for 72, as far as what my needs are, it's important for you to feel recognized and appreciated as an authority in your area of expertise. You also need to see strength in superiors and authority figures and know that they will come to your defense in times of difficulty. And so what causes stress would be your respect for positions of authority suggests that you may feel some pressure when you are unsure 
as to where authority actually resides. You may feel frustrated when you sense that a person in authority will not take a stand. And there's something, not this one-for-one, but a work situation that I've sort of been dealing with since the summer, I'd say, where there's somebody on the program that I work with who has an operations background and has been leaning more into operations discussions and where I am responsible for a very specific scope. I feel like he's overreaching and I know he's not doing it. Like there's no malintent there, but I feel like stepped on in a way and he's sort of in a position of authority, but not really. And so I get very frustrated because I don't really know how to address how I'm feeling without it coming across as not like condescending, but like offensive. I don't know. I asked my boss like for a coach. I said, I need to set up a one-on-one because I don't know how to deal with this, but I know that it's a problem and I need you to please help me. So we'll see how that goes. What's the one that you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, this, this Oh, you want to... Okay. I mean, do you want me to go into my stuff on this or not? No, I thought you said there is another one... No. That was is... pretty different that you wanted to talk about. No, we don't have to talk about it. Just that there was one that was opposite like you had. I know. I want to talk about what that is. Okay. I think it's really interesting when you present as one behavior, but your true needs are very different. So I had one that... I had a very different, so I scored an insistence, a 76 in usual, and a 7 in needs. So Interesting. I flip-flop. So what it says is, placing a high value on system and order, you display definite strength in your preference to work from a plan. You can attend to detail, anticipate difficulties, and include contingencies in your planning. Usual, systematic, procedural, concerned with detail, needs. It's important to note, your strengths are maximized to the extent that your plan is of your own making. Even though you'll put systems in, and procedures in place, you need occasional opportunity to bend your own rules. So, for example, it says only an outline plan to follow. So I prefer to have a very high-level plan or just a goal. Like, let me make my own plan. If I don't, right and someone else makes the plan for me or the plan is too rigid i will overgeneralize neglect of order and system and have a weak follow-through is that where you're talking to marston earlier about self-sabotaging yeah not so much self-sabotaging just like just not being as invested if you don't build the plan or the plan's too specific mm-hmm. or you have no room for flexibility So I think that last one maybe ties to a feeling of comfort when you're in control or have control. And when you don't, when you feel like something is not in your control, you have way less buy-in. And I think that's not, I I think that's probably pretty common across. All the plans too strict, too rigid. Yeah. Not enough room for flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so wrapping up, my last question that I ask all of my guests is if money was no object and you woke up and you didn't have to work or you didn't have any obligations, what would your perfect day look like? It's tough. I think um, 
think I've had a lot of fun in Europe when we go on trips, like around the summer or like your birthday or whatever. So I think it'd be something like that. Be European town, just kind of bopping around. Everything is so like casual. I think that'd be fun just to see the town, stop and eat when you're hungry, you know. I think that's like pretty relaxing and probably something like that. So when are you taking me back to Europe? Twenty twenty seven. Twenty twenty seven. Yeah, well, you already just committed to a trip for twenty six and twenty five. Get too many trips. So in twenty twenty six, that's not going to be that expensive though. Okay, one well, am. Yes. So. Do a cash flow analysis. <laughs> This will be a teaser for the next uh, couples therapy session here is a way that we do our budgeting is through, is it a software? A software YNAB, Y-N-A-B, stands for you need a budget. And what is it? What's the premise? Zero something? Zero, zero base budgeting? I can't remember what it's called. So... Please describe what YNAB is for the audience. You're much better than I am. I mean, the goal is simple, basically. It, you give every dollar a job, and you can't overspend. Like, if you overspend, you have to take dollars from somewhere else. So it keeps you from just going over every budget every month. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable. So if you overspend in groceries, you have to underspend in eating out, for example. You balance the budget every month. And that's the goal is to not budget money you don't have mm-hmm. it's a very effective tool it's a little more complicated than some of the other tools maybe very complicated but it works very well and so you've been using you've been using YNAB since probably 2016 and I started using it at the beginning of the year in 2017 because we knew we needed to start saving for a wedding and there was just some opportunity to like better align our finances. And so ever since 2017, so, you know, five and a half, six years, we've been using YNAB as our budgeting tool. And I mean, I think it's valuable that we should just go through what it is here in this podcast. Right now? Yeah. I mean, it's a two-step process. Step one broad strokes figure out what your budget looks like needs wants savings and so you use like a 50 25 25 ish strategy it's a little complicated with 401k and whatnot but generally that's the strategy but our needs are lower than that i guess so broadly there in excel we agree on categories how much we're going to save in it in a whole year or like per month but Per month for a vacation, like what does that get you to your goal from big picture? So we just do that like in a spreadsheet. Then once we agree on all the categories, groceries, travel, eating out, we load that into a wine app basically. And then you work from that every month. And we have some categories where we both contribute to, let's say, and then some categories you have individually. So it allows you to budget every month, look at what you actually spent, look at trends, look at all these different things to understand whether you're spending more than you said, and if you do, you need to adjust, stay on track for your goals. 
Yeah, so for context, we never combined our finances when we got married. We had already been using YNAB and had a system that was pretty flawless in terms of, you know, eliminated really any conflict on money between the two of us. There's still some tension, I I would say, when we talk about how much we want to save for certain things. To me, I would much rather spend my discretionary money on travel and to you, maybe it's changed over time, but to you, you'd much rather spend it on maybe things that support your hobby, like photography or something like that. And so there were conflicts around, you know, do we each spend X percent so that we, you know, we account for salary differences? We each spend X percent on saving for this category. Like once you, I guess, agree on that as a couple, you just stick to the plan and it's like flawless execution as long as you, you know, are accountable to the plan. But were you going to say something? So because we never combine our finances, we agree on, you know, and split evenly all of our needs. So like rent, groceries, eating out, whatever. And then Alexander has his fund money and I have my fund money and Alexander put, you know, puts whatever he wants in Robinhood or trading options or whatever he wants to do there. And I put, you know, savings in Vanguard, you know, market funds or whatever. And we nobody is like looking at each other when a big box comes in from Amazon or a new lens comes in for a camera. And I think it's like so critical for couples to be on the same page about finances. And I think we're, you know, both such big advocates for YNAB because number one, it's allowed us to be smarter about our savings and how to be successful in saving for big ticket items. And also, it's made the topic of money so unemotional for us that I think that's, you know, a big win for our relationship. So, lots of YouTube videos for how to use YNAB, right? There's lots of resources out there. Yeah. So, we, those videos would probably do a much clearer job explaining than the overview that we went into, but highly advocate for couples out there who are interested in, you know, managing money differently or better or improving that part of your relationship to check out that resource uh, or that concept at least if you want to apply it differently yeah think about like every category is like its own bank account basically when i allows you to have like unlimited bank accounts effectively right so mm-hmm. if you want to eventually buy something for your home like a couch you can put 50 bucks a month in the bank account and when it gets to a thousand dollars or how much the couch is you buy it and you charge it against that account and it goes to you know, zero or whatever. So that's a really simple way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And you can link all of your credit cards and bank accounts and even something like a car that's a depreciation depreciating asset. Another interesting thing about YNAB is it allows you to look at your net worth over time and your age of money and see that grow and, you know, stuff that it runs a lot of reports that are, it would be hard to do by yourself. So anything else you want to add for uh, our guests on the podcast? No, that's it. Well, thank you for your time.
thanks for having me my own house in your own house Uh, all right folks that is it for now i hope you enjoy this chit chat with mr rao and see you next time